Our first scripture reading is from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Luke 13. Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Would you then turn please to Jeremiah chapter 25? I'll read verses 1 to 11. The text for the sermon is verses 1 to 7. And then I'll read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 15, article 3. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, But you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, and from the evil of your deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers for ever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them, and make them a horror, and a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then would you 
Turn to, in your bulletins, I trust, uh, the copy to the copy of the Westminster, chapter 15, article 3. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word preached and we hear talk about sin and warnings and chastisement and provocation of the Lord, Father, do not let us fall into doubt or despair, nor to sit in apathy, but will you strengthen us and guide us by your word to a greater resisting of sin and a greater zeal to serve you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, what role does repentance play in your salvation? That is the issue before us as we find it in the Westminster here in chapter 15, article 3. Part of the answer that the Westminster gives us is that it is a necessary role, the role of repentance, of such necessity that none may expect pardon without it. Uh, true as that is, we have to acknowledge that there are different kinds of necessity. If you want to make chocolate chip cookies, it is necessary to have chocolate chips. However, chocolate chips themselves do not make the cookies. The person doing the baking is the one who does that. So they are kind of a necessary precondition, but we have to ask the question, necessary for what? When we look at these different kinds of necessities. Over against that, you may have a different kind of situation and a different kind of necessity. If you're an athletic person and you would like to get a gold medal in the Olympics, let's say at rowing or something like that, then in that particular case, it is necessary to be very good at it. In that case, there is a, uh, a necessary merit, you might say, in, your, in terms of your abilities, which you can bring to play in that situation. So there are different ways in which something may be necessary, and the question before us is what kind of necessity are we dealing with when we talk about repentance, in what way is it necessary for salvation? And no doubt there are many ways that we can come at that to answer that question. One way is by considering what Jeremiah had to say to the people of Judah, and especially as he dealt with the problem of provoking the Lord. Three points as we look at this. First of all, the mercy of a repeated call. Secondly, the nature of the repeated call. And thirdly, the provocation of the repeated refusal. It's the mercy of the repeated call, its nature, 
and then by way of contrast the provocation of a repeated refusal. In the first place then Jeremiah speaks of a repeated call that he had issued on God's behalf but which also the other prophets had issued pleading with the people of God to repent of their sins. And there's some singling out of a certain sin in this passage. Jeremiah mentions especially idolatry in verse 6. Going after other gods, serving them, worshipping them. And perhaps even in verse 7 where he talks about the work of your hands uh, may well be a reference to the process of idol making with one's hands but it can also refer to other sinful deeds. Well, the Lord warned his people against such things. But the problem is, as verse 3 makes clear, they did not listen. Nor did it seem that they were even inclined to listen. Verse 4. And verse 7 repeats that again. So three verses that point out that the people of Judah were simply not listening. The people of Israel were not listening. Notice how Jeremiah establishes this as a very set pattern in the behaviour of God's people by the repetition of this phrase about not listening, also by emphasising the time over which, the time span over which the Lord had been sending out his messages, sending out his warnings against these very things from the time of Josiah to the time of Jehoiakim, these 23 years which he mentions in verses 1 to 3 by uh, marking that with particular kings uh, during which time Jeremiah had been doing his work. But also by stressing that he had spoken to them again and again, that little phrase, which literally means rising early and speaking or rising early and sending. And it shows the, the zeal with which the prophets sent on God's instigation that he sent them to get up early in the morning to begin calling on the people to repent. And they did this again and again. And Jeremiah did it again and again throughout 23 years. And the people weren't even inclined to listen, let alone actually listening. And then also by stressing that it wasn't just Jeremiah who carried this repeated message, but it was the same from all of God's servants, the prophets, again and again, verse 4. Now, on the one hand, this shows the great mercy of the Lord. Think of that in contrast with ourselves and how we deal with people. How many times would you let someone hurt you before you reached the point that you would begin to hold a grudge? How many times would you repeat yourself to someone who made it clear that they were simply not going to listen to you, unresponsive, before you had reached the point, give up and say, I'm not going to waste my breath on that person anymore. Would you last for 23 years? Well, 23 years is a long time to maintain patience. 23 years is a long time to maintain that degree of mercy, because that's what it is. But you see, the point that Jeremiah's making is that the Lord didn't simply do that for 23 years. He had been doing it ever since the time of the fall. Through all of his prophets. Not just 23 years. And that is a level of grace and mercy that is extremely hard for us to even begin to comprehend. 
because we don't generally act like that with that degree of mercy and patience. That, that's one aspect, one of the implications of what Jeremiah is saying, but there's another one. You see, on the other hand, this long-term situation, centuries of God sending the same kind of warnings and the same kind of call to repentance shows just how wicked sinners are that despite such great mercy and despite such patience and long-suffering from the Lord, they keep on refusing to listen to what he has to say. You know, in our court systems, uh, sometimes, I think, maybe not so much recently, but in the past, they, uh, in certain situations, they, they dealt with the um, now infamous three strikes and you're out system before throwing the book at certain offenders. But the reason for that three strikes and you're out, not one, not two, but three strikes and you're out, because there's one thing that's worse than sinning, and that is persisting in sinning despite every gracious effort to help the sinner repent. In other words, by adding ingratitude and a rejection of mercy to the original offence, which is whatever sin was involved in it, idolatry perhaps in this case, but adding to that ingratitude and a refusal to recognise and respond rightly to the mercy of God. It is such a bad sign, and we know this as elders when we deal with disciplinary matters sometimes in the life of our churches, uh, you get to know this as elders, that it's a really bad sign when a man is caught out in some sin and he confesses that sin and he says he's repentant and he's shown forgiveness, people in the church show him that mercy and forgiveness and he, uh, we, we say that the Lord shows you that mercy when you repent and we tell him about that but then if he goes back to that sin again. It's a bad sign. And yet, uh, we all do it in some way and in some areas. Uh, there are, for all of us, situations where despite all of God's patience and mercy, we keep on sinning every day. And sometimes with particular things in much the same way every day. And the reason for that is because we never appreciate the grace of God and we never value the grace of God in the way that we should, not to mention undervaluing his holiness. In the second place, we look at the details of the repeated call that God issued through Jeremiah and the other prophets, the nature of the repeated call. In the text, you don't find the word Repentance, at least in the English translation of the NASB. But you do find a word, an Old Testament word, that was commonly used for repentance, and it has the same idea, and that is the word turn. That's the key idea in repentance, turning. Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds. Repentance is turning from sin, as I mentioned the other week while at the same time turning back to the Lord in faith. Those two things go together. Remember, that's conversion. Turning from sin, while at the same time turning back to God in faith. If you don't do the two together, then it's not true repentance. 
But the fact is that this is such a repeated message on the part of the prophets that we cannot be in any doubt at all as to how important this is. How importance and how important and how necessary repentance is for the believer. The Westminster says that here. It says that it is necessary for forgiveness, necessary for pardon. Luke 13 said it. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 3 of that chapter and repeated again in almost the same words in verse 5. As we saw last time, Jesus' early preaching was characterised by the call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4 verse 17. There is no doubt at all about the, the necessity of repentance as you consider these emphases and how important these verses make it. And there is no doubt that the call to repentance should therefore be a major element in preaching today. It's one of the reasons why I'm taking time in this particular chapter to go through every article, because it's so important. But how do we understand, how do we understand that necessity? Question I raised at the beginning. Is it a call to atone for your own sin by the act of your repentance as if you can somehow impress God because he looks at you repenting and he says, wow, that person is just so humble. Or he looks at that person and he says, that, the self-honesty in that person, it's so amazing. Or look how willing that person is to change. What a wonderful thing that is. And uh, such questions. That uh, um, he looks at all those things, uh, looks at the things that we do and our attitude and says that... Uh, that kind of behaviour just, it just deserves a reprieve. It earns it in some way. No, we cannot give satisfaction. We cannot make satisfaction for our own sin in any way. We cannot pay the price to remove it, to cover it. We cannot pay the price to make good the debt that we have before God for our disobedience to him and our failure to do the things we should on top of that. Uh, repentance is always, as one writer has described it, too little, too late. Too many mixed motives, too many reservations, too many caveats, too much self-justification, too glib, too short-lived. There is no merit in it at all from our side. I can come back again to the court system in New Zealand and I've uh, over the years sat in from time to time on hearings so I've seen this uh, in action a little bit as I've mentioned before I think but uh, it's quite common when judges are settling the uh, penalty for a particular crime that they give a discount as they call it. You get a discount for being a bit older uh, if you're on trial for something. You can get a discount for that sometimes, I've heard that. I've heard men being given a, a discount for pleading guilty rather than pleading innocent. I've seen men given a discount for feeling remorse, at least as their lawyer describes it. But there's one thing that the courts don't like, and that is an offender who is not sorry. Well, of course, the Lord does not give discounts 
earned by our repentance, as I mentioned. He doesn't give discounts, he simply shows mercy, as the Westminster says, his free grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The removal of the penalty for our sins is only ever earned by the Lord Jesus, by the work that he did on the cross. And that's why the Westminster warns against resting on our own repentance. Uh, The idea being that we could somehow gain a sense of peace and security and confidence by our own transformation. Say, look how I've changed. Isn't that fantastic? That gives me such a sense of peace and well-being. No, it is Christ that gives that, not us, not our change. At the same time, the court of the living God does not like to see, like the court of the land, it does not, he does not like to see an offender who's not sorry for his sins. There is no necessity of repentance as an act of merit by the sinner, but a lack of repentance is surely a definite act of demerit, which does deserve something, not salvation. It deserves the Lord's anger. It deserves the Lord's punishment. It is perhaps for a similar reason if we can move from the courtroom to the the home front. It is perhaps why parents and teachers, while they still bring consequences to a disobedient child, even when the child says he's sorry for his wrongdoing, but nevertheless there are sometimes consequences anyway because the sorrow of the child hasn't paid for their sin but you can be sure that if the child is not sorry then there may well you may well find that the punishment is greater not only so that justice can be seen to be done but because children really need to learn about repentance and sometimes they need to learn that the hard way as little children in terms of the way their parents deal with them And exactly the same is true for us with our Heavenly Father. We need to learn about repentance. And sometimes that is a very hard lesson for us to learn. To explain a little bit further why this is so important, why that is so, that we need to learn these things in this way, uh, and also to show the bearing that this had on the Lord's dealing with Judah in Jeremiah's time, we look in the third and final point at the provocation of the repeated refusal. I've already noted that Israel had a whole history, a whole pattern of ignoring the Lord's warnings, his entreaties, through the prophets. But note that it is especially this thing, their refusal to listen, while, of course, continuing in their idolatry and so forth, it is especially that that is described as the provocation. Verse 6, do not provoke me to anger. And verse 7, you have not listened to me in order that you might provoke me to anger. It's almost as if it's a kind of deliberate aim on the part of God's people that they want to go further in provoking God. And in order to do that, they decide we're going to make it very clear we're not listening to him. A bit like a child who's in the act of being admonished, warned, or having perhaps some punishment for for wrongdoing, and that child becomes angry and retaliates against his father. And he goes even further with it in order to make his father more angry. 
and he says something like, I'm not going to stop, or you can't make me, or I'm not sorry, that defiance that sometimes comes in the midst of correction of a child, which only makes things worse. Consider for a moment why this is so awful. First, because this warning that God, in, in giving this warning that God issued to his people through the prophets, the Lord was exercising his sovereign and his fatherly right to direct their lives, as he does with us. If we provoke him rather than listening to him, we are actually at that point rejecting his claim upon our lives as the great king. That's one reason why it's so bad to add to that original uh, wrongdoing, whatever it is that brings a, a rebuke or a warning, to add to that a refusal to listen, an ongoing refusal to listen. And then the second reason, which I've already uh, covered in some other ways, but I want to draw attention to it again, because the repeated warnings of Scripture, which is where we hear God's admonition and hear his warning in his word, this is such a sign of his grace and his mercy and his love to us, as I mentioned before, that further provocation is a rejection of God's mercy. Mercy is God's MO, it's his modus operandi, his way of dealing with his people. And we see that above all in the Lord Jesus Christ. To further provoke God in this way is in essence to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the very reason that God sent his son for his people, for the elect, in order that mercy would be shown to us. And that's what makes it so serious. Do you provoke the Lord? Well, again, when we sin, and especially when we do so knowingly and repeatedly, especially with what are sometimes referred to as besetting sins, ignoring what we know very, very well from God's word, and refusing to be turned either by his sovereign rights or his abundant mercy to us, that is a, a serious matter. All sin is transgression. But repeated unrepented sin is especially dangerous. It is evident from this that repentance is necessary. It's necessary because the alternative, refusing to repent, is provocation. It is provocation of the living God. It is necessary if we would be a people for whom it is said and it would be true that the last thing we would want to be doing is provoking our God. If that is true, if you want that to be true for yourself, then it is necessary to be a person who repents and, and does so regularly. Not that your repentance is a work of merit that earns your salvation but rather that refusing to listen is such a bad indication of what you think of the Lord. Westminster 15.3 tells us that repentance is of such necessity to all sinners that none may ex expect pardon without it. And again, not because it's a matter of human merit, but rather that it's something that needs to be in place in the hearts of those who are being saved. Because it is 
and has implications for this. It is an aspect of true and saving faith that we accept these truths about our God. We accept his right as the great king. That's a matter of faith. We accept the truth of his mercy, especially in Christ. That is a matter of faith. Like repentance, faith is not the meritorious ground of our salvation. But without it, there is no salvation. Because Christ's merits can only be applied to us through the instrumentality or means of faith. And faith always has backing it repentance. And that is what makes repentance necessary. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to be convicted about the necessity of our repentance? but at the same time not to overvalue or wrongly value it. Not to see it as such a great and good work that you must surely reward us by forgiving us. Father, help us to put the, the, the right value on it, not as a ground of salvation, rather that we would put the ground of our salvation on Christ and his work and value him above all. But Father, do not let us ignore our sins or your warnings against them, lest we should provoke you. Help us to heed those warnings, to examine ourselves and to seek your help to combat any sin of which we become aware. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm uh, 79, Psalter Hymnal 152. Uh, there's no suggestion in this psalm of earning forgiveness. It, uh, it comes by God's mercy, as the psalm makes clear. It comes with his help, as the psalm makes clear. It comes with his compassion. It comes with his power. Psalter Hymnal 152, we'll stand to sing. And would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology.
after the blessing as our doxology, we sing number 280, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>